going to look primarily at verses 7 through 10 this morning. Um, we will get to verses 11 through 18 next Sunday. We'll look at facing providence and facing foolishness. But Solomon is going to continue to take us on this journey and underlying in all of this is really the reality of the fact that everything is in God's hands. We get this from chapter 9, verse 1. So that is the running title for this section as we walk through Ecclesiastes. But if we look at it in, in two thoughts, it's really this. Death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable. And we'll get to the unpredictable part in verses 11 and following. But death is unavoidable and set as the, sort of the overriding thought as he walks through the first part of this section of chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes when he challenges us to face death. He reminds us twice in verse 2 and also in verse 3 the fact that the same fate awaits everyone. And it's interesting because we didn't talk about this last time in verse 3, but he gives us this powerful statement that comes at the end. And it's a little bit reflected in our English translations, but it's easier to be seen in Hebrew. But it's really abrupt. And so really, if I could render verse 3 this way from Hebrew, it would be this. If you notice in the NAS, if that's what you have in your translation, throughout their lives, verse 3 near the end there, it's really while living, and then all of a sudden comes this abrupt statement, they go to the dead. In other words, there is this suddenness in which death confronts life. And Solomon wants us to experience this. This is the beauty of poetry in Scripture and poetry in general is that it isn't just merely for us to read it and know it, but to experience it, to feel it. And this is part of the way in which Solomon takes us on this journey is using these elements to help guide us along as he takes us on this journey in facing life and death, if you will. So when we looked last week, we talked about the fact that there are various responses. And so if I can consolidate them into three thoughts the first one is this, that some, they say, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And this is escapism. And we find this often around us. Verse 3, we find those who plunge themselves deeper and deeper into depravity, trying to escape the reality of the fact that they are going to die. That one day this all comes to us. Some, on the other hand, they tend to grit their teeth and they'll square their shoulders and they'll seek to survive. Just get through life. I want to bear it to the end, but I want to survive this. And it's sort of how they look at life. It's a survival mode. Not the same as endurance. So I'll just tell you that, that we understand that as believers, we're supposed to endure. But that's not what Solomon is laying out for us. Others, though, he says in verse 4, where there is life, there's hope. In other words, Solomon is exhorting us to seize the moments of life, seize the opportunities. And he's going to carry this thought in verses 7 through 10 as he talks about eating your bread with happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. It's going to call on us to just enjoy those moments, the things that God provides for us. He intended them for our pleasure and for our enjoyment. Not excessively, but we are to enjoy them. But I have to make this statement clear in verse 4, and I want to dwell on this a little bit this morning, and I talked about this last week as I introduced it to us in verse 4. But as he talks about this issue of hope, it isn't like how some of the older poets used to think about it. Theocritus, a Greek poet, he wrote this, Console yourselves, things may be better tomorrow. Now we have this kind of mentality today, right? Look for the silver lining. Something hopeful in the future, but not necessarily sure that it's going to happen. 
Not like our hope, where there's certainty, right? We know that what we are, are hoping in and what our hope, the hope that drives us as a result of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ, we have that hope that awaits us in heaven, that Jesus Christ himself is our hope. We know that we have that, surely. There's no question about it. It isn't wishful thinking. And this isn't what Solomon is dealing with here. He isn't talking about looking for the silver lining. But sometimes we do this, and I have to say, I, I've tried to do this as we've gone through Ecclesiastes. Most of the quotes I've drawn from older authors and older people from past generations, reason for that is I want us to see that there is nothing new under the sun. As I started this journey through Ecclesiastes and then prepared to, to teach and preach through it, I started thinking back through some of the slogans that we use in society that people use to talk about life and purpose of life and all these kinds of things and the realization that all of these thoughts have already been here before. There's nothing new, but yet somehow they get repackaged and given new designation, but they've been around for a long time. And so we see this kind of mentality, right, of maybe there's something better in the future for us. But the Spirit, as He writes through Solomon, He wants us to stop and think about these things. We can't press everything that's here, and so my exhortation to you is to go back and dwell on these things on your own, because there's a lot here, but the Spirit wants us to dwell on these thoughts. He wants us to understand that we shouldn't be groping for false hopes in life. And far too many people around us are doing that. But we need to be able to see that and be able to explain that to them, and then be able to lead them to the one true hope, Jesus Christ. But we need to help them understand that their hope is a false hope. Now what's interesting in verses 5 and 6, as we saw last week, is that Solomon is going to talk about this reality of life and what we can expect from it. And you can actually take Solomon's statements and reverse them and apply them to the living. So if I look at verses 5 and 6, we can say this, that the dead do not know what is happening on earth, but the living know and can respond to it. Hence, seize the moment, right? Every opportunity. While you're still living, you still have time to do something. The dead cannot add anything to their reward or the reputation, but the living can, right? Better a live dog than a dead lion. You have a chance to change your reputation. You have a chance to do something different in life. You have a chance for you to be transformed and become new. The dead cannot relate to people on earth by loving, hating, or even in zealousness, but the living can. And as he talks about the relationship of husband and wife in verse 9, notice what he talks about, your wife, right, in this fleeting life of yours. Tells us something about marriage, does it not? That it's only about this realm. We know then later we come to understand that our relationship in heaven is going to be much different. But this is something that God has given us to enjoy right here, right now. So Solomon is essentially, through all of these statements, he is helping us to understand we need to seize the opportunities while we live, but not with a blind hope for the future. I came across this statement by someone, and they had survived a near-fatal accident and, or, or disease, and then they had this heart attack, and they made this statement. They said, the human body experiences a powerful gravitational pull in the direction of hope. So they went on to say that this is why the patient's hopes are the physician's secret weapon. They are the hidden ingredients in any prescription. Is this not so when you go to the doctor and you seek a remedy for whatever ails you and then they give you the prescription, there is hope that you place in the doctor and in the prescription. But sometimes it is a false hope, is it not? Because it doesn't work. 
So Solomon wants us to understand that, yes, there is endurance and we have endurance and it is because of the hope that we have in Christ. And hope seems to be an intrinsic part of living and life. As he makes the statement in verse 4, those who join themselves to the living, there is hope. But at the same time, we are not to have a false hope. In other words, hope and hope is no hope at all. I remember the first time I heard Oprah Winfrey say this, and I've heard it so many times since, but I said that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard someone say. Why? Because it is a self-hypnosis. It is a means of which keeps you from facing true life situations, facing reality and facing the reality of death. It is to hypnotize yourself. Everything's good, everything's happy, everything's fine, and there needs to be no radical change in my life especially if there's sin in it. And albeit, if you have an optimistic patient, this optimistic attitude is going to help them in one sense, but at the same time, it gives them a false hope because they're not really facing death. I was talking with a chaplain in a hospital and he and I were having this conversation and he said, you know what I really try to do with those in hospice care is I, I tried to help them just be at peace in their last days here on earth. What I found out from the conversation is that he wasn't talking about peace with God, which is a radically different kind of peace. It was a matter of just giving them an optimistic perspective as they left this realm. But I asked him, so what happens afterwards? If you make it so pleasant for them as they leave this life and you don't help them face death, you are giving them a false hope. Because yes, they can have this nice, happy outlook in the end, but ultimately the outcome is going to be tragic. Now, I don't know if he took these words to heart, but I had to say them. I find that when you come into someone in the hospital and they're facing death, this is a great time to have a conversation with them about Christ. Because now, no beating around the bush. I remember my dad sharing a story. He was visiting a gentleman in the hospital and he found out he was dying. And this other brother from the church found out. So he showed up and my dad is sitting in the hospital room with this brother and hospital bed and this other gentleman walked in and he grabs the guy's toe as he wiggles it from out from under the sheet and he says so I hear you're dying and my dad was so appalled that he would walk in and say that but then he realized <laughs> that he was helping him face the reality of and fortunately this brother in the hospital was a believer so he got to encourage him in the hope that we have in Christ that the glory that awaits you so far surpasses any kind of suffering you will go through in the last moments of this life. But face it well. And Solomon wants us to do that. Life is difficult. We know that. It's not easy. But it's more than just survival that we're looking for here. So Solomon is going to move from facing death to facing life. And he's going to tell us in verse 7 that we need to do this with enjoyment. Yes, death is a reality, but God gives us gifts to enjoy. Enjoy them. 
But I find it interesting in this what Solomon talks about in regards to this enjoyment. Because if you look at verses 7 through 10, the things that he lays out here for us, these aren't exotic pleasures. He's not talking and telling us to go to faraway places and experience amazing things. He is talking about simple things. He's not calling us to, to jet set life and go and indulge yourself in all of these things, find the best and better in everything. He is going to call on us to enjoy just the simple, ordinary things in life. It's interesting because I was sitting listening to this pastor, and he's preaching this message, and the whole message was really why his wife should be able to buy a $300,000 sports car. Then he goes on to talk about the fact that he bought himself one of these sports cars and why it's okay with God that he has this and why God wants him to have this. And I'm just sitting there just aghast. Are you kidding me? So some have taken this to do that, right? That when he talks about the clothes, put on fine clothes and you need to smell like a million bucks or put on amazing perfumes and all this stuff. This is not what Solomon is getting at here. But we need to understand that what he is talking about is just the common experiences of home life. These things are the most precious moments that we can ever have in life. And we know that in this life, because we are surrounded by sin and this world is cursed by sin, we know that we can have these things and they can be taken away the next moment. So while we have them, enjoy them. But Solomon is going to help us to understand whatever it is that God gives you, find enjoyment in that gift. And don't forget to thank him for that. So he's going to focus on food, family, and work. And he's going to talk about happy leisurely meals in verse 7, joyful celebrations as ordinary occasions. And he's going to talk about a faithful, loving marriage and then hard work. All of these things that we may have experienced at some time are experiencing now. And even if we don't, the call is just to enjoy life. Enjoy the things that God gives you as gifts. Maybe it's not for you to be married. He's not saying that your enjoyment relies on these things. And he's talking about not being controlled by our circumstances because notice verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not there be lacking anointing oil on your head. In other words, don't Respond to your circumstances as often your circumstances demand from you, but respond in a way in which you find the joyous moments in them, no matter how difficult they may be. So we can find ourselves going through a harsh time in life, and yet we can still find something to rejoice in. So Solomon's call is to enjoy life, but it doesn't grant us permission to live a self-indulgent life. We've already seen this within Ecclesiastes, that pleasure for pleasure's sake doesn't provide any value. We know that wealth and possessions do not ultimately guarantee happiness in life. There are a lot of rich people that are very unhappy, very miserable, can't buy their way out of it. We also note that enjoyment is not based on things like perfect circumstances in life or the right him or her in your life. As much as I love my wife, right, I must be satisfied in God and God, right, alone. Because then I can really then enjoy my wife for the gift that she is from God. But if this relationship is not good, this one will definitely not be good. And same for her. If her relationship with the Lord is not good, then this relationship is not going to be good. It's the relationship with the Lord that determines everything for us. 
It doesn't matter if you get a pay raise. It doesn't matter if you get the house you want. It doesn't matter if the individual in your past who hurt you comes and apologizes and reveals the truth. I know we've all been hurt. We've suffered injustices. We're waiting for that moment when the truth will kindly come out that we didn't do what we are accused of doing or that they're sorry for doing to us what they did. That may never come in this lifetime. We know that vindication will come in the end. But we can't wait for it to happen now. And we can't look for the perfect circumstances because we know living in a sinful world, they're never going to come. So if we wait till everything is perfect and everything is in the right order and everything is perfect in our life, then we can rejoice, then we can be happy, then we can thank God. It's never going to happen, then you are never going to enjoy life. So in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, look for those small gifts that God gives us. And so often He gives us those things that are so personal and so intimate to us that only we would see and know and understand that He is doing this. In other words, what Solomon is calling us to is to enjoy life to its fullness, but being completely content with what God has given us. Whatever that may be. Whatever that may be. And we recognize that God is supreme over all things, that He is sufficient, and that we are limited as human beings. Recognizing those things, we can enjoy these things. So Solomon starts off in verse 7, he says this, Go, go with gladness and with a heart joyful, for God has already approved what you do. Go, because He's given you these things. Not only has he approved them, notice this Hebrew word ratzad also means, has the idea of to be pleased with or favorable to. In other words, it isn't just merely the ability to enjoy life that is a gift from God. He desires that we enjoy these things. I have had a hard time with this in my life. Most of the time, if I'm being completely honest, most of the time I think that there, there are good things in my life is simply because my, my God loves my wife and my kids so much. And I get to experience these good things by proxy, right? Through them. I have a hard time accepting the fact that God would do good things in my life and provide these things for me. But He does. I have to accept that and enjoy that. Not, not to indulge in it, right? Because we know that these good gifts from God are not meant to be ultimates. They aren't meant to be God alternatives. But sometimes we do this. They're meant to be enjoyed. But we glorify Him as we enjoy them. And that's the key. Is God glorified when you enjoy the things that He's given you? Do you praise His name for those little gifts that you have in life? So this verse helps us to realize to take pleasure in things. It's okay. This is what God has designed for us. Yes, there is happiness and there is enjoyment involved in God's plan. Although the ultimate goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Thus, we must people, be people of gratefulness, but also generosity. God gives us these things to share. So he's going to take us through this. Enjoy your meals, enjoy every occasion, enjoy your marriage, and enjoy your work. Modern society's formula to happiness is fast food, full schedule, every addiction that can come down the pike, every new thing, right? Live in relationships, shortcuts so you don't have to work as much or at all, but yet you can still get rich quick. All of these things are just substitutes for the real thing. This is what Satan offers. He's the father of lies. He's the father of substitutes. He's the father of counterfeits. Everything that God gives us, he has a counterfeit to it. God offers us joy. He offers us this empty happiness. 
So there is something substantial, Solomon says, to life, not the right labels on your clothes, not the right names that you drop in the right places. The something more is found in what the world calls something less. They're diminishing the family. They're saying that housewives are, are insignificant and minimalized and they need to get out there in the workforce and become something amazing and what have you. I think that my wife is the most amazing person I know. And I know our home would not be a home without her. It'd be a building with four walls and a roof over it. So Solomon begins and he says, I want you to enjoy your meals. Now understand when he's talking about meals here according to Jewish custom, normally they'd have an early snack. So about brunch, 10 to, to noon in there somewhere, they would have this snack, but then would come the main meal after they finished all their work. Their main meal consisted of bread, wine, oftentimes milk and cheese, a few veggies, you can keep that, a little bit of fruit depending on the season, and then fish. But meat was expensive. So notice the fare in their normal meals, what Solomon is talking about here. This isn't some grandiose, indulgent, right? Filet mignon, right? Stuffed potato with the works, right? All that kind of stuff. It's not that. It's just simple meals. This is what he's talking about here, is the simple things in life. Enjoy them. I have found that some of the most enjoyable times around the table is just when we had simple things, like when my kids decide to do a... a, a chicken nugget taste test. So they went around to all the fast food restaurants and got chicken nuggets and brought them home. We sat around the table and we tasted each one of them and compared which one was the best. Or we get a few orders of french fries and we sit in a car in a parking lot and we sit there and eat fries and talk. Some of the most enjoyable moments in my life has not been some fancy affair. It's been simple things in life, but I found to appreciate those moments. Because those are the ones that are priceless. Amen? Sometimes we think to have a full happy life, we keep looking for these major things in life. It's the simple things, Solomon says. And he understands the importance of meals. Proverbs 15, 17, he writes this, Better is a dinner of herbs or broccoli, where love is, than fatted calf steak with hatred. I don't know, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment, but I have a hard time going there. <laughs> Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel or a crouton with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. You can have it all, but if you're all fighting, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not enjoyable, right? Love. Love and fellowship. When they sat down to take a meal, this is what it was about. It wasn't about the food, it was about the fellowship. It was about the relationship. This is why the religious leaders were so upset when Jesus ate with sinners. Because table fellowship was looked upon as something very important and crucial to community life. And if you're sitting with sinners and eating with them, right, you are fellowshipping with a way that is very intimate. I found this, it's interesting, because I was going through the Gospel of Luke, and I noticed how many times Luke talks about dinner parties and Jesus eating and all that stuff, and I realized how much, how important eating was, right? That food fellowship, so amen for potlucks. And so I, I realized that this is so vital. So I had a brother come to me in a seminary in Russia, and he said, you know, I'm having a problem. He was from Kazakhstan, so he wasn't true Russian by blood, okay? 
And so he, he was positioned, he was put in a church where he was serving locally in Novosibirsk where we lived. He was way far away from home. He didn't choose the church for himself, but this is where the leadership put him. And he says, I'm out in this village in the middle of nowhere. And he goes, and I'm trying to pastor this church. It's all older people. And he says, one, I'm from Kazakhstan, so they don't even want to acknowledge my existence. But two, they're older. They've been through all of this persecution, and I haven't, so I, I don't have that connection with them. He says, how do I build a relationship with them when none of them will even acknowledge that I'm even pastoring at the church? I said, food. Food. He said, food? Are you kidding me? I said, no, food. I said, have a meal at the church. Invite everyone to bring food from the house. Have them come Sunday. And after church, after worship, you're going to sit down and have a meal together. He came back to school the next day. I'm telling you, this brother does not ever smile. He had the biggest grin on his face. He was so happy. He could not believe it. He says, it's like it was amazing. Everything has changed. It's all about the fellowship. It's all about the fellowship. Solomon understood that a meal was about a communal thing. It was about friendship. It was about commitment. The most important thing on a family menu is love. It's not what you eat. I'm telling you, we soup and water sometimes. It's what we get, but thank God for it. But I'm just telling you, it's still amazing. It's still amazing. Because the love is there. It turns an ordinary meal into a banquet. This is why he takes us into verse 8. Right? Let, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Notice how he composes the verse. And this is how it is in Hebrew. Bekoet. And so he starts off, in everything, always. In other words, I want you to turn every situation into something amazing. Look at every moment like it's a celebration. So this is the point that he's making with this verse. He starts off with all always and ends with always. This is what I want you to do all the time. Now you need to understand, these white garments, they were emblem of joy and festivity. Both of these statements that he makes here about the oil poured over the head and all that, it reflected joy and festivication. So there is celebration. The average home, it was difficult. And so these moments that the family would have, they would have special moments, weddings, reunions, all of this stuff. We have these moments, right? But he's talking about taking every ordinary moment and making it one of these amazing moments. Turn every moment like this. So often, I, I have found, and I'm, I'm, I'm thanking the Lord, He's opened the eyes of my heart to see this truth. So, you know, with the kids when they're younger and you're trying to get them on that course, right? The will is good, but don't kill the will. Don't break the spirit, but direct it in the right direction. You want to do all of this, right? So it's always correcting and aiming and doing this. And then, but then all of a sudden you look back and those moments are gone. Now they're moving out. Life is getting bigger and they're moving on and they're going to have their families one day. And maybe they won't come around on the holidays. I don't know. But I realize I still have some of these moments. Don't waste them. Don't waste them. I have to remember, I keep the lock unlocked on my door, my office, my bedroom, it's the only place I got. But my office, I leave the door unlocked all the time. As a rule, I've done this for myself. I want the kids to be able to access me. Yeah, they drive me crazy sometimes. 
the twins especially, because they're trying to avoid schoolwork, and so they're constantly walking into the room. Dad, I got a question. Dad, you want to hear this song I'm practicing? Dad, I got to tell you about this. Dad, I got to... It's like, oh, come on, right? And it's never a short story. It's like, get to the point, right? It's a long way around this bush. But I had to realize I need to enjoy those moments because they're not going to always be there. They're not always going to run in like that to want to show you something. They're going to experience so many things in life on their own, and you're not going to be there to have it with them. Maybe they take a picture. Maybe they call you. So Solomon, just like Paul, is saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. It isn't searching for special things in life to find joy in those things. It's about making everyday things special in life. Because they are. So often we fail to give God thanks for things that He provides us, and we're asking for bigger and better all the time. Give me more of this, give me more of that. Spiritually speaking, God, give me this. Well, if we realize how many things He's done for us in Christ and the blessings we already have, it'd change what we ask God for, wouldn't it? I remember the, the owner of Hearst Castle, and a friend of mine and I went there. Before I went to Masters, we decided to do a, a, a just all-out surf trip. So <clears throat> we started in, in Orange County, and we surfed from Huntington Beach, surfed all the way up to, to San Francisco, visited a friend, and then surfed our way back down, and then went down to San Diego and went sailing on my boat for a few days, and then came back up again, and now I was ready to go off to Master's College and learn theology. <clears throat> But it's interesting because in, in the process all, of all of this stuff, I began to realize just how important certain things in life are. But it's funny because we went to Hearst Castle on this trip, and so I was remembering this story. And so he had heard about this painting, Hearst, and he said, I, I want to have this painting. So he sent one of his messengers, go out and find this thing. I want you to purchase it. I want you to buy it for me. Bring it to me. So his servant went and searched everywhere, and he finally came back, and he says, I found the painting. He says, great, did you buy it? And he says, no, you already own it. It's in storage. So many of us as believers, we have so many things spiritually that God has given us, we don't even know what we have. We find ourselves asking for things, and God's going, I already gave that to you. All you need to do is appropriate it to your life. Walk in the richness of what you have in Christ. So enjoy your marriage. Your vain life, not your vain wife, but your vain life, the word Havel here knows he usually uses it in senselessness and absurdity, but here he's using it in its literal meaning, the brevity of life, which tells us something about marriage. And I just have to say that this scripture doesn't talk about living couples and trial marriages. You don't live together till you find out if you're compatible and then you get married. No. And you need to understand that a wife is a gift from God. Or might I add this, a godly wife is a gift from God. Solomon understood this, but he came to realize it a little bit later in life, right? After he made some serious mistakes. And marriage is a loving covenant commitment that lasts a lifetime. This is the scripture model for us. Does it always work out that way? No, but this is what we strive for. The standard never changes with God, Right? I mean, Jesus, when he's asked about divorce and all that, he goes back to Genesis. Why? Because the standard has never changed. It's always the same. This is what we strive for. So we seek to have in life great joy in a home of a man and woman who first love God and then love each other because you cannot truly love each other the way that you ought to love each other until you have that relationship with God. 
I know my wife can't love me unless she has a relationship with the Lord. This is the only way she can love me, right? And the old saying, love is blind, I tell her, no, the, your love isn't blind. She sees everything in me. She sees all my flaws, and she loves me anyway. But that's biblical love. It's not a because of love. It's an in spite of love. She doesn't love me because I'm amazing. She loves me in spite of all of my failures, cracks, and crevices. She sees me for who I am, and yet she loves me nonetheless. So God is the key element in all of this. This is Ecclesiastes. Solomon doesn't ever come out and say, put your faith and trust in God and depend on him only. He doesn't say it directly, but everything he says in Ecclesiastes screams this. So I tell my kids, you're going to get married. Find someone who has a loving, living relationship with God. If you have someone who fears God, then great. I'm behind it. I'm behind it. Why wouldn't I be? <laughs> Why wouldn't I be? Enjoy your work, verse 10, and we end with this. The Jewish mindset didn't see work as a curse, but as a stewardship. <laughs> I thought when I had to start working that, that work was a curse. <laughs> Until I read Genesis a little more carefully, and they were tending the garden before the fall. <laughs> I was like, man, all right, so work is a part of life, and we ought to do this, right? <laughs> So Solomon says, do it with all your might, suggests two things. Do your very best and do it while you still have the strength to do it. And give God glory and thanks for the fact that you have a job. Amen? Amen. So there's many who do not. Let's pray. Robert, would you close in prayer, brother?